You're listening to The Exchange. Here's today's show. Thank you, Scott. Hi, everybody. I'm Kelly Evans. Here's what's ahead this hour. Inflation soars by the most in over a decade, and the monthly increase in CPI was the second biggest since 1981. So why are stocks rallying? Why are bond yields barely budging? I think they're even dropping right now. We're going to explore this seeming disconnect. Plus, another sell-side analyst throws in the towel. B of A downgrading Clover to underperform after its Reddit-fueled run-up, the latest in this tug-of-war. And Starbucks shortages, consumers behaving badly, and crypto is coming to 401ks. It's all in rapid fire, but we start with the latest state of play in the markets. Dom Chu is back with that. Hi, Dom. All right, so Kelly, the state of play is generally positive. If you take a look at the markets overall, we're off our session highs, but still, I'm going to put a star next to the S&P 500 because we hit a record high shortly after the opening bell there. But the Dow Industrials, 34,593, up 150 points, half a percent. Generally speaking, roughly half a percent advances for the three major indices. So keep an eye on those particular moves in the marketplace, record highs for the S&P. You mentioned Clover Health. Let's take a look at some of the other meme stocks that we've been talking a lot about. The Kings, the original ones, GameStop and AMC, both down rather sharply. 10% for AMC, down about 22% for GameStop. They could look to sell shares in a secondary offering. But let's look at clean fuel, clean energy fuels, down 15%. Also, Workhorse, the electric vehicle company, a nat gas for vehicles, an electric vehicle company. Both names getting some love from meme stock traders and they're now selling off today. By the way, if you want to know more about some of these other meme stocks, Bank of America analysts have put out a new note on what the next meme stocks could be. CNBC Pro subscribers can go on our website and get those details. And then we'll take a look at RH. Those numbers, great. Still showing signs of life in the home improvement market. We're right near record highs, as you can see here. The records were earlier this year. We're just about $33 away from where those levels were. But still, RH.com, the old restoration hardware. This is upscale furniture and furnishings, Kelly. They are showing that the home improvement market is still alive and well. Those outlook numbers look pretty good. RH, the stock of the day, I'll send things back over to you. I know you follow that one closely, Dom. Yes, I do. <laughs> Dom Chu. <laughs> Consumer prices continue to soar. The CPI jumping 5% year over year in May. That's the fastest pace in nearly 13 years. But both stocks and bonds seem to be shrugging off this news. The S&P 500 hitting a new record high today. The 10-year Treasury yield now in the red. It's at 1.47%. What's behind this inflationary disconnect? Joining me now are Mark Smith. He's Senior Vice President and Portfolio Manager at Wells Fargo Advisors. And John Augustine is Chief Investment Officer at Huntington Private. Bank. Welcome to you both. Mark, please explain what the heck is going on, especially in the bond market. Yeah, well, listen, CPI is kind of the news of the day, you know, hitting five. And, you know, that hasn't been hit since 2008. The disconnect is in 2008, there wasn't as much liquidity as there is right now. You've had trillions of dollars pumped into the economy by the feds. And then you've got more cash on hand and in, in people's uh, checking, checking accounts than you've seen in 30 years. And so that's the disconnect. Even though CPI is going up, you know, folks are still spending money um, because they need what they want and they got the cash to do it. Understood. So here's my question. And, you know, investors look at all this, they go, there's cash sloshing around everywhere. But why would people buy bonds with that money? Why buy bonds? I don't understand. Listen, people are a little afraid of where we are in the market. When I talk to my clients every day, they're looking at every single stock they own in their portfolio at all time highs. And so when folks think that there's not a lot, a lot more to go up, they're going to go into those safety assets like fixed income. John, what would you add to that? And, and I would say that 
The fact that it's happening to me is what's interesting. In other words, you know, we can all sit around here. Yeah, it doesn't make sense that one and a half should be up at two, even if. But it doesn't matter because it it continues to persist and it's wreaking havoc at the short end. You know, when the 10 years at one and a half and T-bills are negative and banks have to park their cash with the Fed instead, there's all sorts of bizarre machinations happening. And I'm just trying to figure out which is the dog and which is the tail, so to speak. Now, you're, Kelly, you're right. The, the bond market is a conundrum to us. It's confusing to us. It's a mystery. But what we know is there's a lot of foreign buying coming in. We learned that earlier this week with one of the Treasury auctions. Then we also know that the, the bond market believes the Fed, that this is transitory, that reopening parts of the economy are leading this inflation, which you and Tim were talking about. That's That's what the bond market sees. And by the way, there could be a, a, a more, let's say, spooky component. We're actually seeing small cap stocks down today. Is the bond market thinking that potentially inflation could start to slow the economy? Exactly. We haven't thought that one through yet. It's exactly. just something on our mind. And that, I, that's exactly what I want to bring to the surface, Mark, because when people look at price hikes, they go, I'm seeing price hikes everywhere. I'm seeing it's got to be inflation. Well, no, price hikes can be a problem if you can't absorb them, right? The the thing that's different this time around is that everyone's sitting on these cash balances and, and sitting on these stimulus checks and you go, well, maybe the consumer can absorb it at least for a time. How do you invest in an environment where the prevailing paradigm for the next six to 12 months after that point where things may look completely different? You've got to look at sectors that haven't performed well in the last you know, year or so, and there are quite a few of them. You still see that there's quite a bit of upside in the financial sector compared to many other sectors out there. Folks are talking about energy. There's a lot of sectors out there that people can get into um, and to try to avoid some of these pitfalls of investing at all time highs. So we're you know, I'm telling my clients the value over growth right now. You're going to you're going to, you're going to continue to see these uh, consumer uh, discretionary stocks run. Everyone is out. I I just went to Miami this weekend. Couldn't get a hotel. Couldn't get a restaurant reservation. Flights are over a thousand dollars. This is coach. So, uh, you know, people are spending money because they have it. Unfortunately, it's the it's it's the haves and have not. So these inflationary numbers are going to really affect the bottom uh, uh, part of the of the country and the economic stratosphere. And, and, and folks at the top just really don't care. They're spending their money. No, you're absolutely right. I mean, it's going to create a pinch. You know, maybe there's a, a little bit of an offset right now from stimulus checks, but that's going to wane over time. And these prices may or may not wane. I mean, we know when companies raise them, they don't like to then go, you know what, eh, forget it. We'll We'll, go, we'll cut them 20% next year because we can't. No, of course, John, they keep them high. So where do you put money to work in this environment? John, I know you have a lot of ideas both in the bond markets and for you know, the stock market. Can you give us just a couple of the quickest ones? Sure. Think, think about this. Number one, post-recession. Number two, inflation concerned. So in March, we started moving inflation concerned. We're doing it again now in June. What that means to us is tips, gold, silver, real estate, more equities than bonds because we're thinking yields are going up as well. So what's on our mind post-recession, there's $4 trillion being debated to see if this economy actually speeds up or if it slows down. And then we have to take some inflation hedge for our clients at Huntington. That's our job. Guide through recessions, guide through inflations. And right now, headline inflation is up. But we hope the Fed's right that it's transitory. Yeah, we'll leave it there with that $4 trillion question hanging in the balance. John Augustine and Mark Smith, thank you both very, very much today. We appreciate it. Let's turn to in-person conferences. They're back and there's a big energy event in Houston to kick off the reopening right now. The timing is perfect because energy itself has been red hot and the stock of a nearly 140-year-old company 
is going up pretty strongly as well. They've gone from taking grease out of restaurants to revolutionizing the fuel industry. Brian Sullivan is down at the Tudor Pickering Hold Energy Conference with the CEO of Darling Ingredients for us. Brian? Hey, Kelly, thanks very much. I mean, yeah, I mean, you talked about the meme stocks a few minutes ago with Dom. Well, this stock, not a meme stock, but it's taken off like rocket fuel if rocket fuel is powered by renewable diesel, which maybe it will be someday. Randy Stewie is the CEO of Darling Ingredients, DAR. You took over the company decades ago, 65 cent stock. You're one of the hottest stocks in the entire energy space, but a lot of our viewers may not be familiar with you. Restaurants, grease, animal fats, but renewable diesel. What's Darling's main business right now? We process 10% of the world's slaughtered animal byproducts. We convert them into food products. If anybody takes a gel cap every morning, if you're seeing Jennifer Aniston out there on collagen peptides, that's us. If you then you move over to the feed sector, pet foods, aquaculture feeds, organic fertilizers, and then you move to the fuel. And that's where we've taken animal fats, the greenest hydrocarbon in the world, and we've cracked it and made a decarbonizing solution that's just ready for today's world. And you got a joint, you've got a joint venture with Valero, a 50-50 joint venture, obviously on the refining side as well. What is your total addressable market in renewable diesel? And talk to us a little bit about margins, because there's a lot of other companies here and elsewhere that would also like to be in that space. Yeah, the first thing, Brian, is, is renewable fuels are just part of a portfolio of solutions that the world needs to both power itself and decarbonize itself. When we went into this in uh, 2010 with Valero, they had already moved into the, the, the ethanol space. They're the greenest oil company out there. They're a great partner. We brought serial number 01 of the idea of marrying the, the Darling supply chain of animal fats, their knowledge of hydro-treating or mm -hmm. cracking the molecule, and today we make 275 million gallons. I know it's a miniature drop in the bucket of fuel. Uh, here around fourth quarter, that'll move up to 675, 700 million. And then we got a third plant due online in 23 that'll put us at 1.2 billion gallons, making us one of the largest in the world or the second and the largest in North America in making green yeah. renewable fuels. And I, you know, I was going to ask him, Kelly, because the stock has gone from 25 to 75, 77 bucks. If you thought that they've gotten ahead of itself, but then Citigroup yesterday comes out with an initiation, a buy rating, and a $110 price. You were at $25, now $110 price target, you're 75 bucks. What is the street, what did they miss before, or what are they just catching on to now? The, the, the street is still trying to understand, is the margin in renewable diesel sustainable? Is the moat that we've built around our St. Charles and our Port Arthur facility, is it defensible? Meaning, we've married a supply chain of the lowest cost, low carbon intensity fuel, with great technology, a great partner, yep. and a great downstream. So now they're starting to see the earnings come off of it. And all of a sudden, you know, they're running the model. And it's so simple. We're running margins in, in excess of $2 a gallon. We're going to produce 700 million gallons here in about three months. We'll be at that run rate, marry it to our core business. And it's a real easy multiple valuation. You get into $1.2 to $1.5 billion EBITDA yeah. numbers and then take a multiple times it. But, is it, it's a, but it is kind of a hard company to understand because you are unique. There's, not, there's private companies that do kind of what you do, but there's no real big public companies. Do you feel like that's been part of the issue with the stock until recently, that analysts, you know, they're not, you're not oil and gas, really. You're kind of in the animal space. You're kind of in the pharmaceutical space. It's hard to understand. It's a, it's a, as we say, it's a simple business with a lot of moving parts. There's no public comps out there anywhere in the world. As I said, we process 10% of the world's yep. animal byproducts today. And, and it's just a, it's a really unique space, but it's one that 
also doesn't get a lot of coverage. You know, we've been lucky to bring on a lot of energy yeah. analysts this last year. That's assisted us. People are starting to, we're starting to shine. And it's really fun for our employees, our shareholders, our board, everybody to see this thing come together. Stock has been rocket fuel, and you say you're not getting a lot of coverage. Well, you're getting coverage right now. Randy Stewie, CEO of Darling Ingredients, thank you. Thank you. Our first in-person guest at about 15 months back at a conference, and what better to do it? The stock, Kelly, I don't want to say it's a meme stock, but it's certainly been acting like that as well. But Citigroup says it's got a long way to go. By the way, we've got a long way to go here at the conference. More guests all day long here on CNBC from Houston. Great stuff, Brian. Thank you so much, Brian Sullivan, bringing us an under-the-radar energy play. Coming up as offices reopen, there's a brewing standoff with employees over returning to work, with large numbers asking to work from home. Why this could be another deflationary trend. Plus, tonight could be a make-or-break moment for Tesla CEO Elon Musk as the company delivers its first plaid version of the Model S. We'll take a look under the hood and what's riding on tonight's big unveiling. We're back in a moment. This is The Exchange on CNBC. Welcome back to The Exchange. The past year plus of remote work has been transformative for society. Our work lives changed overnight. And as the economy now reopens, a standoff is forming between employees who don't want to come back to the office full time and their managers. Morning Consult found that nearly 40 percent of adults surveyed would consider quitting their jobs if their bosses weren't flexible about remote work. On the other hand, a poll by the Best Practice Institute found that some 83 percent of CEOs want employees back in the office full time. So what's the future of the workplace? Let's bring in Steve Odland. He's president and CEO of the conference board and a CNBC contributor. And Ethan Bernstein is associate professor of business administration at Harvard Business School. Welcome to you both. Ethan, I'll start with you because I know you do a lot of work on office uh, space planning and architecture and best practices and that kind of thing. What are you hearing from, you know, employers right now? How are they going to be changing the way that the office looks? Thank you, Kelly. So, you know, it's I actually go back to when we published our HBR, the implications of working without an office last July. Boy, that feels like a long time ago. And we knew it that at that point this conversation was coming and it has come. Um, back then, office white-collar white office workers were showing that necessity really was the mother of invention. They were sort of figuring it out. We saw satisfaction, conflict, emotion, engagement all going in the right direction. And since then, honestly, traditional metrics that we've been tracking every two weeks have only gotten better. So in some respects, there's this appreciation for remote work amongst many white-collar workers, captured also by you know, larger data sets like my colleague uh, Sadal Neely in her new book, Remote Revolution. I sorry, remote work revolution. Um, and so that all of that sort of leaving executives with two questions. The first is, if all of our traditional workplace metrics look so good, then why are we interested in going back, quote unquote, hmm. to offices? And if we're not going back, then what are we going forward to? So that that's the conversation they're having right now. And it's all tied up in so many of the different ways that we figured out how to make work over the last 15, oh, sure. 16, 17 months. Steve Odlin, there are major societal implications here because if people don't have to live within a decent driving distance of their office, they can basically live anywhere. Um, might, so we're, we want to also talk about this sort of deflationary trend that's underpinned here. You could move to a lower cost uh, part of the country 
and save a lot of money that way, improve your uh, standard of living. The idea that employers don't necessarily have to have a furnished, built-out working space for every employee is also deflationary. I mean, it allows them to save a lot of money on real estate and sort of the functions of being in the office. Yeah, I think both of those things are true. And, you know, it, it's, it's a question of where this is going to shake out. You know, if we look at the conference board survey a year ago, there are only about half of the uh, HR leaders willing to hire remotely. Now it's nearly 90 percent. And the reason a year ago was that they didn't think that the productivity was going to be there. Now that we've proven it, they know the productivity is there. So, you know, I think it's what's going to end up happening is you're going to have probably a fourth of the workforce. Now, we're not talking about in-service, you know, restaurants, retail, but, uh, you know, office-style service, you know, that can be, can be done in a, in a setting. It'll be about 25% in-person, probably 25% remote, and about 50% hybrid, which still allows that ability to live in, in low-cost areas and be deflationary. The one thing that's not deflationary is wages. We're right. not seeing wages. We're not seeing people then go and say, well, you know, because I'm hybrid or because I'm remote, I'm willing to, to earn less. So that, that part is not coming. We've seen, Ethan, a few companies where the pay structure is changing, although sometimes that's correlated to them you know, being headquartered in really high cost parts of the country. So it's not necessarily, hey, you're going to take lower for working out of the office. It's, hey, you're going to take lower because we don't have to pay for you to work in San Francisco. <laughs> so we're going to we're going to match that to whatever, you know, the stand. I've, I've seen companies even looking at colas across the cost of living averages across the country to figure out exactly what percentage they should offer people relative to maybe uh, the home base. So, OK, we say people are getting more comfortable with it. It's getting more productive, Ethan. But I wonder, is all of this just for a specific cohort of the workforce. When you talk to younger people, older people whose kids are out of the home, they're more inclined to go mix it up with people in the office. That's a bigger draw, that socialization, whereas those who are balancing family life with work life obviously are, they get, they get plenty of so-called socialization at home. But do remember, uh, it's a great point, but do remember that we've been doing this, what, for 15 months in some cases? If you have a turnover rate, that means that that percentage of your workforce has never been in an office of yours, period. So socialization for them has nothing to do with physical space. And are they more important or are the people who've been there more? Who's more adjustable? Which way should we go? There is a degree to which socialization, onboarding, figuring out how we work together, figuring out how we network with each other, we've now got two ways of doing it. Either way is going to be a little bit bumpy. And what I find so fascinating and interesting about Steve's numbers, 50% hybrid, that's the one category of work we don't know how to do. Hmm. It's going to be a very bumpy ride going forward. And I think there's going to be a lot of experimentation in the process, including, quite frankly, with these questions about compensation and how the global talent market, which we've always talked about, ne never really had. Yeah. If we actually have that remotely, it's going to change the way we have to calculate compensation. It's true, Steve, because we've all we've been talking for decades in this country about outsourcing and all all these different things. But you now have a situation where an employer in New Jersey can hire someone in Ohio or Virginia as easily as another New Jerseyan. And the pay structures in those states may be far lower and therefore allow the, the company to be more profitable simply because there's no difference in where that employee is. And you wonder if there's actually going to be some kind of regulation. I mean, why not? Right. Like if, if they say, well, wait a minute, that's that's not fair. Yeah, it, it, it's a really good question. And I think companies are struggling with it. It's interesting, though, uh, you know, on this generational question, because our surveys at the conference board pre pandemic said that the people who wanted remote work and were most equipped for it were the millennials. Hmm. During the pandemic, it turns out that the millennials 
were climbing the walls in these small apartments, these studio apartments, and wanted to get out. And the people, the baby boomers were in the sitting in the suburbs saying, hey, I'm fine out here. And so now the, the surveys say it's flipped. And so the, the baby boomer generation is more comfortable. And you're seeing the, the urban flight out, you know, which is why you're seeing some of the inflation you know, numbers that you were just talking about driven by uh, you know, cars and everything else. But this is a this is a change. So the question is, are they going to migrate back? You know, is that going to flip back again? I think it's going to you know, recede partially, but it, there is some permanence here, Kelly. That's so fascinating. Thanks, guys, both of you for fleshing this out today with us. Steve Odlin, Ethan Bernstein. Uh, big changes happening during the pandemic. Coming up, Wall Street reacting to the Reddit-fueled moves and yet another stock today. Despite taking a little bit of a breather, these shares are up nearly 70% since Monday. We'll tell you the name and the moves that analysts are making. As we head to break, a reminder that June is Pride Month and all month long, CNBC is spotlighting contributors, business leaders, and our own on-air anchors and producers. Here's Kevin Flynn. Here's my advice for the next generation. Be proud of who you are. Be true to yourself. Never be something you are not to please someone else. Your identity gives you power. Use it. Help others with it. Be fearless. Be a leader. Always stand up for what's right. Your sense of pride in yourself is going to tear down walls and build a future that's more equitable and inclusive. Go fight for it. Welcome back to The Exchange. Markets are off their highs. The Dow was up almost 300 points earlier, especially after that CPI report. It's up 134 right now, and it's the underperformer with a third percent gain. The S&P's up half a percent. We're watching record high close here, just about this level at 42.42. The Nasdaq composite adding more than two-thirds of a percent. In terms of some of the individual movers, we're watching the whole healthcare space as the best-performing sector today and for the week. Biogen moving higher today, nearly 4 percent. It's up more than 50 percent after approval for its FDA, uh, FDA approval for its Alzheimer's drug this week. Again, you can see the positive momentum carrying over to the session today, where even Eli Lilly is up almost 4% to a new all-time high. Elsewhere, shares of the original Bark Company are higher, as Jefferies initiates it with a buy and a $14 price target, citing strong subscription growth. I said, what's the original Bark Company? It's BarkBox. Remember them? They began trading last week under the new name after merging with the SPAC company. They're up 20% so far this week, 5% today. And shares of GameStop are sinking despite a revenue beat and naming two Amazon executives as its new CEO and CFO, but the retailer didn't give guidance, leading Baird to say its turnaround plan remains a mystery. They predict a 90% decline in the stock price. GameStop is down 20% today to 241 and change. For more on the Baird call, head over to cnbc.com slash pro. And crypto for retirement. Good luck at Starbucks these days and the corporate response to bad behavior. It's all coming up in rapid fire right after this. Welcome back, everybody. Let's catch you up on several stories that should be on your radar right now. It is time for Rapid Fire. Here to break down the headlines, Kate Rogers, Bob Bassani, and Contessa Brewer all join me. Welcome one and all. And our first topic today, cryptos could soon be heading to your retirement fund. 401k provider For Us All is teaming up with Coinbase to introduce the Alt 401k plan. Enrolled members can transfer up to 5% of their 401k balance into a secure account with exposure to a list of 50 cryptocurrencies. While the Bitcoin boom has cooled off lately, Ether and Dogecoin have still been to the moon this year. Bob Bassani, is this the single most irresponsible thing you've ever heard? 
<laughs> so what's an asset class? An asset class is stocks and bonds uh, and cash. I guess you could say real estate is an asset class, commodities maybe. And what's the purpose of an asset class? It's to diversify your portfolio. That's why you have different asset classes. So, for example, how about collectibles, coins, stamps, rock posters? If they diversify your asset base, yes, uh, okay, I consider them. So here's the problem with Bitcoin. Could it diversify as a, your, your investments? Could it service a diversifier? It certainly could. The problem is the volatility is so crazy that most people would advise you to stay away from it. That's why they're putting that 5% limit in there and they're acting very paranoid about making sure people aren't going to go over that 5% limit. Personally, I would tell people to stay away from it, but I can see why people are interested in the possibility of getting more people involved in their retirement funds. Kate Rogers, what are your thoughts? So to Bob's last point there, getting more people and younger people in particular interested and involved with their retirement fund, I believe the company mentioned 20 and 30 year olds, their interest in all of these alternative asset classes and Bitcoin in particular. So if it gets you more engaged with your 401k at a younger age, that could be a good deal. But the 5% guardrail does seem smart, as Bob also mentioned, considering all the volatility that's going on as a way to kind of protect your broader 401k and all of that uh, investing and time you're putting into it. I don't know that I'd want to risk it all on something like that. Contessa. Well, I think that the democratic access to vehicles for speculation ought to be available to all. Democratic access to all. I feel like that's a stump speech or something like like you want to. I'm working on it. Yeah, it's not bad. But I guess, Contessa, here's the thing. You could I mean, you it's not like people are saying you can't invest in crypto. It's the question is whether a 401k fund should be harder uh, to put something like that, that it's not just that it's speculative, it's still so new. I mean, a lot of these are truly untested. That, that's true. But they also argue that it's a hedge against inflation. Um, and because we're watching CPI come in and we're watching the cost of things go up, if you're a young person and you're wondering how fast your money has to grow to keep up with inflation, a hedge against inflation seems like a good idea. The fact that they're capping at 5% to Kate's point is the way to keep things safe um, for the 401k managers, you know, it'll be interesting to see whether we see other big 401k platforms following suit. Yeah, I absolutely think this is a marketing move. I wanted to pick all of your brains before we pick the brain of the company itself. We're going to be talking to them next hour during our special crypto hour, the crypto craze in Power Lunch today, the CEO of that 401k provider. All right, let's move along, talk about our next topic here, uh, which is Starbucks. Kate Rogers, the journal is reporting that it's running short on everything from syrups to oat milk even to cups. They're actually even pausing production on some less popular items right now, concentrating on only the biggest sellers and blaming these shortages on suppliers amid the pandemic. Kate, they're saying it's just a temporary problem that varies from store to store. But I guess this is an unusual phenomenon for Starbucks because they're supposed to have the most leverage out there in the market. They should be everybody's best customer who gets all the, you know, the stuff first off the line, right? So, Kelly, I think there's a few different things at play here. As you mentioned, the company won't confirm specifics in terms of cake pops or cups on what specifically is being uh, shorted across the country. But I know on my own app, I've gotten shortage notices on things like certain iced teas that I've tried to order. Oat milk, Oatly, remember, they've teamed up with that company, which recently went public. There have been some shortages with that. Ongoing supply chain issues 
business is really booming at Starbucks because the country's reopening, people are going back in, and they're, they're really buying a lot there. So that's one good thing. But there are also some labor challenges in the supply chain. As you mentioned, Starbucks is huge. It should be everyone's biggest customer. Uh, but I don't think anyone is safe from the ongoing labor challenges that are being felt everywhere across the board. Starbucks isn't the only company that's brought this up. We've also heard it from places like Papa John's and their supply chain. Wingstop mentioned it uh, with the chicken wing shortage that, that's been going on. So I think that this is being felt particularly hard in the restaurant industry right now, but it's really widespread and we continue to talk about it on the air. Contessa, what are your thoughts? Well, I think if you look at a place like uh, Buffalo Wild Wings in Las Vegas had to post a sign saying, we're out of wings because of a wing shortage. We're going to close tonight at midnight. If you have to close early, if you can't give people the core product to what your business does, it is going to affect the bottom line. And furthermore, I think that people, I, I think some of the, these, these retailers could uh, risk losing customers for the long haul if they go and sample other uh, competitors across the street because of these supply chain disruptions. Yeah. I think that this is a real warning sign that th- this could hit the bottom line. And Bob, I want to give you a quick word on this quickly. The cups will return. The little ketchup <laughs> things will return. <laughs> don't, don't panic. This is a good moment to look at reusable objects. They use 7 billion cups a year. 7 billion cups a year. Reusable cups, they're allowing them back in. I think it's great. I'm not necessarily carrying around a reusable cup, but a lot of people I see walking in Starbucks have the little metal reusable uh, cups that, that they have. I think it's a great idea to start looking at that. I, I know I'm throwing in a little point here, but it, it's a good moment. As long as they're it. not reusing the cake pops, you know what I'm saying? I mean, you can do it with some parts of it, <laughs> but you can't do it with everything else. Back. Kind of speaking yeah, of the no. supply chain, um, J.P. Morgan left the UPS Investor Day yesterday with a little bit different impression than everybody else. They said they're impressed. They upgraded shares of UPS to overweight today, saying the new mantra of being better, not bigger, and concentrating on more lucrative deliveries should lead shares higher over time. They also like the pricing power, improving efficiency, and the dividend yield. They upped their price target to 243 a share. That's $40 above where we are now. Bob, after the shares got hammered today because people didn't like, for the most part, what they heard. So a, a different point of view here from JPM. I have to say, I was totally confused on what the messaging was on this. Here's the one thing that I did take away. I'm a big dividend guy. Uh, UPS pays uh, two bucks, uh, four bucks a year right now. That's a 2% dividend. Believe it or not, that's a really good dividend. The S&P only pays 1.3%. It's terrible these days, the dividends. So they talked about the idea of perhaps going up 80 basis points, paying out more of their cash flow to the dividend, could go to 2.8%. 2.8% dividend, believe it or not, is top 20%, top 100 in the S&P 500. You're just below the food companies, the utilities, the REITs. That could be very, very attractive to the dividend people. That's the one thing that I took yeah. away that I thought was kind of interesting. I think interesting. some investors go, well, is that really the best use of cash? You know, you're up against Amazon, you're up against FedEx, and granted, they've been outperforming FedEx this year, Contessa, but they go, maybe, you know, maybe you want to invest that in taking on that, you know, who, you're taking on Amazon. That's a, that's a tough competitor. But I think the real key here is pricing power. If you have figured out how to execute prices that are going to cover the costs, then that's that's key. And they said that um, the cost efficiencies that UPS is finding can drive margins higher here. I think that's worth noting that I think the price is key. Okay, and a rebound for UPS today, as we mentioned, tough session yesterday, today adding a little bit north of 1%. And finally... A year and a half stuck at home is apparently causing some pent-up anger amongst the public, and it's now spilling into public. Fist fights over mask wearing and seats on planes, fans spitting on NBA players, a rise in hate crimes across the country. It's now forcing businesses to play babysitter to help protect their bottom lines. Contessa Brewer, what is going on? 
The numbers back this up. The FAA says it has seen a marked increase in the number of instances of reported unruly passengers. We know that Southwest and American Airlines have refused to reinstitute alcohol service on the planes because of this rise. In fact, a flight attendant got her teeth knocked out by an unruly passenger. Masks at the center of some of this, but not all. For instance, Target and Walmart had to start limiting sales of Pokemon cards because of fights by grown men over getting these. Here's one in Walmart, as you can see, where they're fighting over access to these trading cards. Target has just reinstituted Pokemon, but not the sport trading cards, they say, because of the safety of their employees and their customers is paramount. We know it takes effect on the in the roads that uh, last year, while driving overall was down, fatalities were way, way up because of excessive speed, because people on their phones, and because of impaired driving. And then I, I did talk to a psychologist about how you can change this around because the retailers are desperate. Their frontline people are getting attacked on the basis of gender identity and their race and their disabilities. And the psychologist said there is a marked um, increase in bad behavior. It's because of stress and frustration leading to aggression. It's because of bad role models that the people we admire are behaving badly and then we see it playing out. And they say to turn it around, what you need is a lot of empathy and going back to that golden rule. So Gap, for one, and other retailers have joined in on an initiative to get customers to pledge that they will support these frontline workers and and not let this bad behavior take over. Kate Rogers? I am appalled at all of the bad behavior, particularly, can we just take a moment to talk about grown men fist fighting over Pokemon cards? (laughs) Like, what in the world is going on? Um, I think, personally, just in covering restaurants and small business over the last year, these frontline workers that interface with consumers have been through so much, as of their parent companies, over the last year. I think you really need to, as Contessa noted, have empathy and be patient and kind to people who have worked throughout this entire pandemic and, you know, put their health and safety on the line. I, I just, I don't know how you reenter society and treat people like this. It's really disappointing. Bob, will give you the last word here. Well, there's two ways to look at this. One is the incident level is still fairly small, so don't get that concerned about it. The other way to look at it, I think the right way, and I agree with Contessa, is even a small number of incidents is alarming. So the question is, did suddenly we all forget how to behave in public because of COVID, or did this actually start long before that as a result of, as Contessa noted, bad role models or really disgraceful behavior on social media in general? I tend to think it started well before that, and believing COVID is probably not the right way to look at it. But I'm with Contessa, better role models, calling people out on it, and empathy is definitely what we need more of. Actually, Contessa, let's put a button on I'm just curious for your response to all that. Well, I'm all for, you know, I, I really, I honestly think that when you look at the experts on this and they are gauging the bad behavior because they're seeing it increasing across industries, it's true we have a problem. They do say the pandemic being cooped up, homeschooling kids, being sick, the frustration has uh, exacerbated what may have been a problem yeah. even before the pandemic. So it's, the problem is real And the trick is, as you say, put yourself in somebody else's shoes. Would you want somebody else to tailgate Mm -hmm. you? Do you want somebody else to yell and spit at you, throw water bottles? just not nice. I'm rethinking my uh, my drive-in this morning. I'm sorry, everybody. Uh, anyway, I liked it better when all the bad behavior was just on Twitter, not in the real world. Thank you all very much today. Contessa Brewer, Kate Rogers, and our Bob Pisani. Still ahead, another analyst has changed coverage thanks to the Reddit-fueled moves in this company's stock. The name is up 70% this week, and those details are next.
Welcome back to The Exchange. I'm Tyler Matheson. Here's what's happening at this hour. Houston hospital workers aren't the only ones protesting mandatory COVID vaccination. Some of Maryland's biggest hospitals are also telling workers they must get their shots if they want to keep their jobs. And in some quarters, it's not going over well. Tonight on the news, the growing fight over mandates and what else is being done to persuade people to get vaccinated. In Russia, health measures are being stepped up to hold a new rise in COVID infections. New confirmed cases topped 11,000 today, a level not seen since March. Russian media showing bus riders getting tickets for not wearing face masks. And in Uganda, hospitals say they are overwhelmed with COVID patients. The country's been reporting some of its highest daily cases totals of the pandemic in recent weeks. Travel restrictions have been imposed and vaccine doses have been recalled from rural areas to fight outbreaks in big cities. Kelly, I'll see you in a few minutes. Meantime, back to you. Can't wait, Tyler. Thank you. We've got another instance of Reddit traders forcing the street's hand. Shares of Clover Health might be lower today, but they are up 70 percent over the past week, and that's causing Bank of America to downgrade Clover to underperform, saying their valuation is no longer supported by fundamentals. The analysts are maintaining their $10 price target. Clover's at 15. They think Clover services provide value, and the company will continue to outpace the broader Medicare insurance market. But the current growth path, they say, doesn't support the current valuation. This is after Bank of America pulled coverage of GameStop and decided Bed Bath & Beyond a no rating last week. Coming up, Tesla's Plaid Plus Model S might have been canceled, but the regular Plaid is still a go, and it will be unveiled tonight. The details and what it means for Elon Musk are next. Welcome back. Elon Musk is set to deliver the first Plaid Model S featuring a gussied up interior. We'll tell you about what to expect for this unveil tonight. There's a lot riding on the event. Phil LeBeau is here with all the details for us. Phil? Kelly, the exterior of the Tesla Model S Plaid that will, the first delivery is taking place tonight out in Fremont, California. It's not a whole lot different than the other Tesla Model S's that are currently being sold. Where you really notice the difference under the hood with the battery and the acceleration, as well as in terms of the interior. Zero to 60 in under two seconds is what they're promising. 1,025 horsepower. You've got adequate range at a price tag of just under $130,000. And then there is the interior. Now, this is getting a fair amount of attention. They have improved it by adding, look at that, a yoke. The steering yoke will have a lot of people talking, saying, look, I feel like I'm in the cockpit flying this thing. Uh, they also have enhanced infotainment uh, options that include karaoke. So if you were to buy one, Kelly, you could do karaoke within your Tesla Model S Plaid. As you take a look at shares of Tesla, remember, we have not seen an Elon Musk event streamed like this in some time. I, I think the Cybertruck might have been the last one. There might have been another one since then. Uh, these are the types of events typically that really get Tesla fans going uh, in part because, A, they hear from Elon Musk, and B, there is always an energy at these events that no other automaker has been able to match. And we'll see if that's the case tonight when they do the delivery event for the Tesla Model S Plaid. Sounds like a fun party, a karaoke party in the new car, Phil. But I actually wanted to ask about that steering wheel. I just assumed it was a federal requirement for them all to be round. I mean, th there must literally be, you know, hey, they have to be this many inches by this many inches and allow there, you to grip there, in this there many There are locations. a lot of regulations. And could we see this come to there all are... car models in the future? Well, it depends. Do people want it? I mean, look, we are headed towards a future where you will theoretically see vehicles with no steering wheel. 
though that is a regulation that will have to be uh, ultimately approved by federal authority. So I wouldn't be surprised if you see an evolution when it comes to steering wheels. Uh, and, and I think that people are looking at this and they're saying, is it for me? Yeah, maybe for a lot of people it's not. But I think for those people who are attracted to that yoke, I think they cannot wait to get a chance to get in and drive the plaid because it's not just the, the yoke, Kelly. It's that zero to 60 in under two seconds. Yes, fair enough. Although I usually drive with my hands in that kind of lower position, but it's the turn that I can't quite wrap my head around. Maybe I'll get a chance to try it out one day. Phil, thank you so much, sir. Phil LeBeau with the latest on Tesla. That does it for us. You've been listening to The Exchange. Make sure you're subscribed to get each episode every day, same time, same place.